The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The last few weeks we've been dealing with the cults and the occult. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the occult yet, but we've been dealing with uh, several cults. Last week was Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, the week before that was um, basically dealing with the history of the perversion of the doctrine of Christ. And so really what we're trying to do, and I just want to draw your attention to this every week just because I think it's uh, just a helpful reminder. There is no way we could in 13 weeks dig into every cult that's out there and through all of their doctrine so that you would be an expert on that cult. That is not the goal here at all. What we really want to do what I really want to do is expose you to how the doctrine of Jesus is perverted so that you know when you talk with anybody, it doesn't matter if they're Jehovah's Witness or if they're a Mormon or if they're a group, some other group that you've never heard of before, maybe that springs up tomorrow. How do you get to the bottom of the difference between the gospel of Jesus as is, has been given to us through historic Christianity for 2,000 years versus what is being believed by them? So that's one thing is allowing you to see through the smokescreen to what is really behind all of that. And then the other is really be able to kind of, for your own edification, understand what right doctrine really is. That's Jen McKinney. How are you, Jen McKinney? Everybody, it's good to see you. I had heard you were coming today. That's good to see you. Um, but still, when people walk in that have been gone for a while, you're like, what? There you are. Uh, okay, so, uh, so really, it's for us to be edified in what right doctrine actually is. Some things that we are really never forced to wrestle with sometimes and we're really ill-prepared for, and then also be able to see behind the smokescreen of what is being presented to you. Because there's, not, there's, there's really not a cult that I know of that stands on your doorstep and says, Hi, I represent a cult, and uh, I don't believe in the same kind of Jesus that you Christians do, and I'm going to try to persuade you away from Christianity and into my cult. There's no one that to my knowledge, that does that. Maybe there will be somebody show up on your doorstep that does that, but that's, that's not going to normally happen. It's going to be, no, we believe in the same thing. No, we, there was a, uh, I was, I mentioned this before, but uh, I was at a park watching my kids and two Mormon missionaries came up to me and we talked a little bit about various things and we weren't really making any progress and I said, do you believe that I'm saved. Because they were spent their time trying to convince me, we're, we're, we're Christians. We're Christians like you are Christians. And I said, do you believe that I'm saved? And I don't think they've ever gotten that question before. Because they, they stopped and they were like, uh, what do we do? Because we're going to have to tell this guy that he's going to hell. you know." And he was like, well, no. And I said, so you are trying to evangelize me. You do want me to come to your side. And I'm telling you that's never going to happen. So anyway, um, the point is that, that that's how it comes to you, is, is a, under a, a, a masquerade that says we're really the same, but really we're not. And that needs to be exposed. So 
I want to go into some brief history before we get into some Mormon beliefs. And I think maybe by the time we get to the Mormon beliefs, we've gone through this several weeks now. I want to kind of hear from you as you hear some of their beliefs to kind of correct their beliefs, all right, as we go through it. But first, a little background. Uh, I think, yep, Joseph Smith was born in 1805 to Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Smith, and 11 years later, the family moved to New York. So I, I, I put this in here just because I want you to see, I want you to see a progression, uh, but then also I want you to keep track of the years so you can just kind of uh, n- note what's happening here. So say it again. Yep. Yes. He was. He was born in a place. And, and it was in time and space, and, and it was there. And it was a city probably named after somebody. Who knows? Had a town square and everything. It was big and magnificent. But they moved to New York. In 1820, do the math, 15, I think, right? I'm not a math magician, but I think that's close. Joseph Smith received his first vision. All right. Immediately you're thinking, like, 15, received a vision. And what kind of vision is this? Um, That vision is reported in a book that is highly revered amongst Mormons called The Pearl of Great Price. And the vision was essentially, the, the, uh, the gist of it is that God the Father and God the Son materialized in front of him and spoke to him as he prayed in a nearby wooded area. Now, if somebody tells you this, they come to you and they report this to you, how are you going to feel about it? Suspicious, right? You should, you should be suspicious. Uh, I want to just pause here for just a second and, and think about for, for just a second when we say, as Christians, we'll, we'll hear Christians say routinely to us, maybe even, uh, God spoke to me. We hear this? You've heard this? I heard this this week. God spoke to me. I think I understand what most people mean when they say that. I think what most people mean is, either good or bad, I did not feel at peace about this or that thing. There was something not right about it, and I felt like that was different. Or, I was reminded of some scripture that contradicts that or that affirms that thing. And they would say, maybe uh, God spoke to me in that sense, or I just I felt a push in that direction about a choice, a decision. I think that's what most people mean. So I'm not saying that that does not happen, okay? I, I, I agree that the Spirit does lead us in that way. I do think we have to be very careful about the words we use when we say what we mean, right? And, and really be specific about what we're saying. I was reminded of Scripture that says this. God says this about that thing. Or, I didn't feel at peace about that. Okay, that is a, there is some subjectivity to that, of course. And you might be very convinced that the Spirit is the one drawing you in that direction. I just think that when we move to the next step of saying God spoke to me, we can put it in the realm of biblical accuracy. Inerrant, infallible, God spoke in this direction. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, God spoke to me, and there's plenty of problems with what God spoke to them, supposedly. So I just think we have to be very careful about that, and you can see that coming to light when we look at some of the origins of these cultic ideologies. Invariably, there's going to be, at some point, God speaks to them. Now, I don't need to remind you, I don't think, or maybe I do, that the devil also speaks, and he masquerades as an angel of light, and he is very, very convincing. And we'll quote Scripture. If you remember Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, he is, Satan comes to him, and Satan brings to him God's Word. What is the problem with him bringing God's Word? You would think, well, there it is, right in the Bible. Why don't you just cast yourself off this thing? Because God says he won't let your foot be dashed against a rock. I mean, he'll send his angels to protect you. And that's true. If you were to go to Psalm 91, it says that there. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with him quoting Scripture? Ha! So, it's not just... God's Word being brought to you. The Mormons here that are gonna, we're going to see will show up on your doorstep with a King James Bible and a Book of Mormon and a lot of other things, but they'll show up with a King James Bible and they'll read you the Bible and they'll interpret it for you. The problem is not the Word necessarily that they've got in their hands, but the way that it's interpreted also. Right words are great, but right meaning is important, too. You can't divorce the two. So, um, he has this vision. And and in the vision, the two persons, God the Father, God the Son, that are now materialized in front of him, were displeased with the Christian church and announced that a restoration of true Christianity was needed and that he had been chosen to launch the new dispensation. After the death of the apostles, true Christianity fell into complete apostasy, making it necessary for a restoration. You're going to notice... Charlie. Um, that they were physical beings in front of them. F- physical in the sense that if, uh, if, you, if an angel were to appear to you, not invisibly, but visibly, with a human body, right? With a body of some kind, right? If they were to... Yeah, or like in, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, they reach out and they touch the foreheads of the people groping at the door, or the people coming to the door, right? Like there's a material there. Like they actually, that's the way I understand, what I understand them to say, is that God the Father, God the Son, you know, uh, Star Trek, beam me down, Scotty kind of thing, right in front of him, like we're materialized there. Um, so what we're going to notice over the next coming weeks is that there's kind of a theme beginning to emerge in some of these cults, probably has always been there, but... It, um, but it's certainly in some of the more New Age cults as well, and I would include Mormonism in that, uh, is this, this emerging theme of things are really wrong, 
and we need you to fix it. You, person that we're coming to, are the chosen one. Okay, spoiler alert, you're actually going to see this in UFOlogy. When we get into the, the occult of UFOs and things like that, I know that sounds crazy, and I, I'm already prepared for, the, <laughs> for, that, for that week. Uh, but, but you're going to see some of this very same thing re-emerge in that cult as well, is this same idea of, look, Jesus had origin. Jesus was just one of you. He had originally come to set things right. He was he was a chosen one that that uh, was sent to do this, and and his course has run out. Now you are the next one. Some women even believe they're being they're bearing the Messiah and things like this. So th- there's this emerging theme that you're going to see replayed over and over. The the devil has a set of tricks that he reuses and recycles and rebrands and repackages over and over and over again to trick an entirely new generation, right? Because we tend to be very bad at history. And so uh, he, uh, is, he has this vision, and God the Father, God the Son, they materialize, they speak, and they tell him, we need you to really restore true doctrine to the Christian church. Now, Surely there is a question, if we were to dig back, let's say we were actually have Mormon missionaries on our doorstep, and let's also say they were willing to engage in their history, in the history of the Mormon cult. Uh, what, what would be the result of us asking, what did it mean, as Charlie asked, for God the Father and God the Son to materialize in front of Joseph Smith? And second question, how did he know that was God the Father and God the Son? Right? That would be a very good question to ask because no one else was there to witness it to my understanding other than Joseph Smith, and then he reports this to others. This would be the same for Islam and many other uh, religions like this, where one person witnesses this miraculous event and then tells other people about it. Uh, So 1823, this is three years later. If you do the math, I think that is 18 years old, if I'm not mistaken. The angel Moroni, uh, yeah, the angel Moroni visits Joseph Smith in a vision to tell him where the golden plates and Urim and Thummim would be found to aid in the translation. If you remember, Urim and Thummim are the two stones on the breastplate of the priest, uh, the ephod, which is like a picture, like a almost like an iPad hanging around the neck of a, of a priest, and on it, instead of apps, you've got stones, essentially built in a grid, just like that. I mean, this, this is what it looks like, right? And two of those are Urim and Thummim that he could take out. They're black and white and could divine a yes or no answer, essentially, from God, okay? Um, so the Moroni shows up to Joseph Smith, tells him where these golden plates are. We'll talk about them in a second where these golden plates are, and then on the golden plates, he's going to need to interpret them, and so the Urim and Thummim, he's going to need to be able to translate those. The golden plates allegedly contained the fullness of the everlasting gospel. So if you encounter a a Mormon and you were to ask them, as I did, uh, are you evangelizing me? Am I going to hell? Uh, They'll tell you, probably if they're being honest with you, they'll tell you yes, And the reason is because you don't believe in the fullness of the gospel. 
When you ask them what the fullness of the gospel is, often they get very mealy-mouthed and wishy-washy and circular in logic. But, at least has been my experience, but the point is they will tell you you don't believe the fullness of the gospel, which supposedly from the angel Moroni, Joseph Smith is here uh, receiving once he retrieves these golden plates. Now, concluding his presentation, the angel Moroni warned Joseph Smith that when the time came to obtain the plates, if he showed them to anyone not approved of the Lord, he would be destroyed. I know what you're thinking. How convenient. (laughs) Um, I, I did look into this like, surely that didn't pass muster with everyone, did it? Turns out there are, um, what's reported is eight witnesses and three witnesses and then another undocumented witness, who's apparently a woman somewhere who claims she also saw them. But the eight witnesses and the three witnesses, which make a total of 11 witnesses, uh, have supposedly been shown these golden plates and have seen them in the flesh and testified to them long uh, into their days and even into their death. Uh, All of them are, or at least most of them, are family members of Joseph Smith, including his father and his brothers. Uh, Some of them are um, other relatives, distant and otherwise, and somehow connected to the Mormon movement, uh, have all been the witnesses of, but nobody else outside the family have been the witnesses of the golden plates. Okay? Uh, What's that? They are, uh, mm-hmm, yep, yep, yep. Doug asks, where are they today? And, and the answer is somewhere, you know, uh, probably inside the Ark of the Covenant, for all I know, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of one of those deals that's like, very convenient, we can't produce these today. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I don't think so. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. Uh, again, say again. Uh, an angel. Uh, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, if we really knew, you know, I, I'm sure. Uh, there, there is some a devious snake. So, and here's this. I should say this. Thank you for the question because uh, when when we read about cultic origins, it's not necessary that we just conclude that Joseph Smith saw nothing and he just lied about it. I, I actually don't think that's true. I think he probably did see something. I don't know what it was, but he he, he probably did see something and may have even been very convinced that it was real. Again, with the UFO things, you hear people abducted by UFOs, and you go, it's easy to chalk it up to they're crazy, or they saw nothing, or they're making it up. I think that shortchanges satanic deviousness. Because often people do really see these kinds of things, and are very convinced by what is reported to them, And it does play very much into the schemes of Satan to present to people a false gospel, even through miraculous means. Happens all the time. And just because you've never seen it personally or experienced that personally 
doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It's, scripture is replete with these kinds of things happening to people all over. I mean, de- when, you, when you look in the Gospels at demon-possessed people, it's not as though they were just walking down the road one day and all of a sudden, you know, a, you know they're possessed by a demon and, and just began acting in those kinds. No, no, no. There is a lifetime of activity that takes place first, of them engaging with various kinds of dark and spiritual forces before those things ever become ever come to fruition. So it's difficult for us to to make light of it because we believe Moses spoke with God and interpreted right. Mary That's right. Yeah. That's why, uh, you know, when, we, when I approach this, these 13 weeks, I, I'm not, I don't want to, um, to, to just teach you what Mormons believe. I think that would actually not be beneficial to us at all. Because what is it that allows, let's say, Peter or Paul in Acts, what is it that allows them to look at a person Obviously, they have a gift of apostleship. Okay, so I get that, right? But to, to look at a person and say, that person is demon-possessed. Well, or even Christians throughout history, okay? Let's go to, you know, a pastor, a solid, faithful, gospel-preaching pastor in the middle of Africa walks into a village and sees a person, a, a witch doctor, uh, preaching all kinds of false Gospels. What, what is it that allows that pastor to go, that is not true, and defend himself against this spiritual force here? It's sound doctrine. That's the only thing that actually will allow you to be equipped with truth and to know that what's materialized in front of me is not God the Father and God the Son. Because they're presenting to me a gospel that is false. This is what John tells us in 1 John. To question the spirits, right? Now, obviously, he's meaning preachers of the gospel, but it's really part and parcel of the same thing. What allows us to defend ourselves as 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 a Christian people against a false gospel on our doorstep? It is sound doctrine. It is not knowing everything that they believe. It is sound doctrine. So, uh, so they materialize in front of him, give him this warning about the, the things, golden plates. And in 1827, Smith claimed to receive, so it took him, uh, what, four years, to find these golden plates. He received the golden plates upon which the Book of Mormon is allegedly to have been written, is alleged to have been written. So on these golden plates is what, what was recorded now as the Book of Mormon. Okay, So shortly after, uh, the translation of these plates began on the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics inscribed on the plates. And Urim and Thummim were used for the translation. So angel appears to him, tells him you're going to find these golden plates finds the golden plates. On them is not English, but is, is 
Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. I know what you're thinking. The cynic in me would push back against that and say, is they, are they Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics so that you could write literally whatever you wanted to on there and just claim that they were Reformed and not have to check them against Egyptian hieroglyphics? But we'll save that for another day. Okay, um, if it was a debate between me, <laughs> me and a Mormon, that would be where we would go. Um, okay, so he uses the Urim and Thummim to translate the Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics inscribed on the plates. Two years later, in 1829... John the Baptist conferred on Joseph Smith, and I'm not sure how John the Baptist appeared to him, but John the Baptist conferred on Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, who is a recent convert, the Aaronic priesthood. And the following year, the Book of Mormon was completed, and zealous missionaries began the work of evangelism. So the priesthood of Aaron is now transferred to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, and they now have the Aaronic priesthood. And uh, there's obviously Mormon missionaries that are still zealous to this day to evangelize the lost. Uh, around 1846, Brigham Young, so this is now the next generation is taking over, Brigham Young took over and subsequently moved the Mormon group from where they were headquartered in Illinois to Utah. So we find in Utah now today, Brigham Young University, we find um, uh, the whole state is uh, replete with Mormons, and the, they owe it to Brigham Young in 1846, moving them there. Okay, so brief history, brief overview. You're already seeing some problems develop, hopefully, that is quite different than the way the Christian gospel developed. Timothy. Yeah, and yeah, Reformation is going through you, not through Christ, not Christ and His church, but through you, and that Reformation is going to take place outside the church as a critic, cynic, and a uh, one who leads people out of the church, instead of as one coming and preaching inside the church. Typically what you'll see invariably in all of these is someone that, is, that has removed himself from the church, himself or even herself from the church, placed himself or herself on an island somewhere, or meaning away from genuine Christians, and now is without recourse or anything like that able to preach and teach whatever they want. Whereas if they were in the church and sought to reform the church from within, then the church would go, wait, who appeared to you? What did they say? What was the name of this person? Let's look in the scriptures and be able to, you know, go toe-to-toe with somebody who is, who is bringing in a false gospel. And you would hope that a church body as a whole, together with the pastor, would also be able to say, that's not true. That's false, and you need to repent of those kinds of things. But invariably what happens is, for ease of conversion, they're removed from the church altogether, begin being persuaded by this false gospel, and have no one there to correct them. So essentially then, it's just picking off various people, uh, one after another. All right. So uh, that's 
the brief history. Now let's go through some Mormon beliefs, and let's just see. Some of them you may not have an opinion on, and that's fine, uh, but some of them you may go, wait a minute, I think this is false. Uh, they're all false, but just, you know, I want you to kind of think through, what, what would I say if somebody was telling me this? Um, first Mormon belief, Mormons possess the priesthood of Melchizedek and Aaron. This was allegedly conferred on Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in 1829 by John the Baptist. I've already told you that, but I want you to think about this one for just a second. Uh, now, typically, I think when we get to Genesis, people have a lot of questions about Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews, which we're starting in January, uh, and we'll spend a lot of time on, uh, that'll come up again, okay? But when we get to Melchizedek, people have a lot of questions. Who is this guy? Abraham meets him. He seems to be from the ancient, ancient city of Jerusalem. I don't mean the ancient city of Jerusalem. I mean the one that before that, uh, even. He seems to be from there. Uh, he comes to, to Abraham, and he seems to be a believer in Yahweh, best we can tell. He blesses Abraham in the name of Yahweh, and then he just disappears. And we're like, where did he come from? Now, this is an actual person that's being presented to us. This is not an angelic appearance or anything like that. And then the author of Hebrews makes a comment about him that's kind of a little bit strange that we have to unpack when we get there. But who is this guy, Melchizedek? A lot of people have that question. The idea that's, that's kind of presented in Genesis and then rounded off in Hebrews is that Melchizedek does not fall under the lineage of Aaron. He's not one of Aaron's children. And so, because he's not one of Aaron's children, that would seem to be that he cannot be a priest. But we have this rare exception in Genesis where this guy Melchizedek shows up as a priest to God. Okay? Which, you know, is not supposed to happen as far as we know in the law. But what ha what in the book of Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews argues that Christ is a priest but he's from the line of Judah. How can Christ, who is from the line of Judah, be a priest when he's not from the line of Aaron? You tracking with me so far? The author of Hebrews concludes he's a priest like unto the line of Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek was a priest outside of the line of Aaron, so Jesus is a priest outside of the line of Aaron. But let's say, for instance, since we have that aside, a Mormon is, you're engaging a Mormon and you say, don't you believe that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in 1829 were conferred the priesthood of Melchizedek and Aaron by John the Baptist? Don't you believe that? And they were to say, yes, that's true. What would you say in response with real Christian doctrine? What would be your comeback? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Okay. Um, now, just is very interesting because his name means high priest, actually means to rule under some authority. Okay. Uh, but, the, but from Christian doctrine, um, you can worship Christ, um, get away with the necessity of being a priest. And he, he, he's a, a priest, uh, the final priest in, in England, prophet, and he was the high priest. So. Uh, I'm going to repeat what Doug, how Doug answered this, which is to say, uh, 
the Christian doctrine would teach that Christ is the only high priest that will ever henceforth be needed between God and man. This is actually solid Christian doctrine, reiteration of Christian doctrine, found in the book of Hebrews, by the way, that will help you talk with Mormons, talk with Catholics, talk with many others who believe that there are alternative intercessors between you and God. So do you need the saints? Do you need Mary? Do you need Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery? You don't. The, what, what's happening here in even just the presentation of two men as priests and establishing a new priesthood line is taking the doctrine of Christ as the once and for all forever high priest and subverting it. But do you see how subtle it is? Well, because he did. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> yeah, so, so but, that, but the, the point, and this is, this is why I say it comes to you in, in a smokescreen, is that at first you might think, okay, that's strange, but I don't really have a bone to pick with them over, you know, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery becoming priests. I mean, we could debate that all day, and I don't believe it happened, but... It's not that consequential to what I believe. That is false. It actually undermines the very premise of what Jesus did. When Jesus died, said, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the temple curtain tore in two. It validates the fact that he is, once and for all, not only the high priest, but the sacrifice as well. That you don't need a sacrifice and you don't need a priest. That now the only intercessor between God and man is Jesus Christ. That's it. So while this first Mormon belief seems to be relatively innocuous, it's not. It's subverting Christian doctrine to the uttermost. But, but here's what that also does. Think about it this way. That Mormon that is on your doorstep is right now convinced that they need something other than Jesus. There is a need deep in the human soul that says, I must do more. Surely this isn't it. This can't be all there is. There's a deep need in us to be special. I mean, think about it. Don't We all... To some degree or another, if we were really to be honest with ourselves, we would say, I, I really do want to be special. I mean, 23andMe and Ancestry.com were put together to show you what kind of neat little package you are, right? Look at this. Look at what God has put together here, all right? I'm 25% this, and I'm 13% that, and, you know... It's this kind of reiteration. I'm not saying there's anything bad about 23andMeAndInsertion.com. They are owned by Mormons, though, I think. One of them is, ironically, but that's an aside. Uh, but what I am saying is, like, there is this deep need to feel this, and Satan knows that, too. 
You don't think Joseph Smith had that deep feeling out in the woods here when, of course he did. But that Mormon that's standing on your doorstep feels that same draw too. And when they, they hear this doctrine that says, no, you, you have to work. Here's how you can earn your way to heaven because Jesus wasn't enough. It puts the ownership back in my hands and says, all right, now I'm responsible for my own destiny. Now, they don't realize how perilous that is. Okay, they don't. But it does touch that deep feeling that they've got that says, i got to work for this. Now, i got to keep going because otherwise we won't get done. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yes. 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 But give me a second. I'll get there. Um, so this is straight from uh, Mormon doc. I can't remember which one. I want to say it's the Book of Mormon. God was once as we are now and is an exalted man. All right? Right? If <laughs> you went, whoa, I recognize that one. That one's, that one's super false. Uh, <laughs> maybe you could um, gather. Let me, go through, let me go through the next ones and we kind of unpack it a little bit more and maybe you can see here. These are, these are quotes. So, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Remember that God, our Heavenly Father, was perhaps once a child, immortal like we ourselves, and rose step by step in the scale of progress, in the school of advancement, has moved forward and overcome until he has arrived at the point where he is now. So this is a, this is a doctrine of Mormon theology that says God was once a man, that he worked and lived righteously, and then was conferred on him a world, a universe, that was his, that he was God over. Um, Jesus, likewise, uh, similar to that, is uh, in a very same vein anyway, is man, and through righteousness, through works of righteousness, uh, becomes a God in his own right. And so, so they believe that Yahweh, or they would say Elohim, was once a man and worked his way up to godhood, essentially. And you can, too. By works of righteousness, you can become a god in your own right. Now, uh, is there... Now you're probably like, gosh, where do I even begin? Right? <laughs> you know, in, in addressing... Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is none like him. Right? Go ahead. Yes, by another, it's just, are you familiar with the, the dad that tells his kid, his kid says, what's in the center of the earth, and, or what's holding up the earth, and he says, a turtle, and he says, well, what's holding up the turtle, and he says, a turtle, and then he says, well, what's holding up that turtle, and he says, son, it's turtles all the way down, all right? <laughs> That's kind of what essentially the saying is, is like, you know, it just keeps going, right? Elohim was created, and there was a God that created him. 
And we'll have that God get, well, it's God's all the way up, all right? Yeah, all the way there is, is, is what it is. And so, um, but, but essentially what fuels the works of evangelism, what fuels all of that is a desire to earn your own keep, to have your own world, to be a, become a God like God is. When, but when the Bible says there, there is none like Him, what does that say to any other gods? They're, they're polytheists, functional. Polytheists, functional. But what does that say to the other gods? That Elohim says there is none like Him. Jesus Christ is a separate God from the Father. These are two among many gods. Many gods. Each of these gods, including Jesus Christ and His Father, being in possession of not merely an organized spirit, but also a glorious, immortal body of flesh and bones. So when Jesus says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth, they would say, no, he has a body. Jesus, on the other hand, we would agree. We would say he took on flesh and bones and is now a human in the Godhead, that he is resurrected body and flesh. Oh, yeah, I don't, I didn't, I hope I didn't say a few changes. Did I say a few changes? Uh, let me amend that. Few in an ironic sort of way, in a sarcastic sort of way. Go ahead. They don't. What they say is there are certain verses of the King James Version that are translated correctly and others that are not translated correctly. Right? Uh, again, what we see is that there's nobody that in the Mormon faith that, that has ever come forward with proper uh, interpretations of Greek and Hebrew and actually dealing with the Greek and Hebrew text and arguing for a certain translation. Not Greek and Hebrew scholars, certainly, as we saw with Jehovah's Witnesses last week. Um, okay, here, this will really cook your noodle. Are you ready for this one? Jesus was procreated offspring of God the Father and a heavenly mother. I got some mixed reports on this, is whether it was a heavenly mother or Mary, but I think, according to Mormon doctrine, it is a heavenly mother. Uh, so it was the procreated offspring of God the Father and a heavenly mother, and the brother of Satan. I didn't throw that one in there, but you can just know that of uh, the eternal or the brother of Satan, the offspring of God. Christ's unique status in the flesh as the offspring of a mortal mother and of an immortal or resurrected and glorified father. These are these are again just quotes. Uh, Christ was begotten of his father as we are of our fathers. So in the exact same way, as we are of our fathers through procreative act. This teaching, however, is often masked, this is just a, this is from me here, this teaching, however, is often masked in such, a, in such veiled languages 
as to make it appear as though they agree with the historic teaching of the virgin birth by conception of the Holy Spirit. But they do not. So, they're going, when, when you debate with a Mormon on your doorstep over the doctrine of the virgin birth, they're going to make it sound very much like they agree with what you're saying. That, yes, that's, that's what we believe. No, no, no. It's not. It is, a, it is a procreative act that God the Father engaged in with a heavenly mother to produce Jesus. That is not at all what we believe. Um, there are four holy books in Mormon doctrine. There's one called Doctrine and Covenants. I wanted you to write doctrine just to make you go, is it really doctrine? Uh, it is a doctrine for sure. No, it's not sound. Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, and the Holy Bible, the KJV, or the accurate portions. Okay, um, The Book of Mormon was translated from the Golden Plates. Uh, the Pearl of Great Price is a selection from the Revelations, Translations, and Writings of Joseph Smith. And Doctrine and Covenants is a compilation of Revelations and Writings given since the restoration of the church began. What all of that boils down to is this, and I want to put, I know I'm kind of going through this fast, but I, I, I'll gladly fill in any blanks you need later on, but um, it, it all boils down to this. Salvation is by faith in Christ and baptism by immersion, obedience to the teachings of the Mormon church, good works, and keeping the commandments of God which will cleanse away the stain of sin. Do you see that? What cleanses the stain of sin? Christ and Christ alone. It's the song that you can sing to yourself when Mormons come to the door. It's in, in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my life. Something, something, something. <laughs> I could sing it, but it, you know, when I'm reciting it's hard. Uh, but but we, we reiterate sound doctrines. I want you to flip over to the, the, the appendix here with the Nicene Creed. We've gone through this several times. But I want, I, I'm highlighting here just some differences, some significant differences from Mormonism. And you'll notice that Mormonism is really just repackaging uh, Arianism that, God, that Jesus was, was made. Again, these are, these are the same perversions of Christian doctrine that have been happening for 2,000 years been around for a long time. They just repackaged, rebranded, got a different little face on it, a little edifice. But it's the same thing, right? So when we go back to the Nicene Creed, remembering, and, and remember what the Nicene Creed is. This is not, uh, the, this is not inerrant, infallible, certainly. But it is the church reflecting on a couple hundred years of Christian teaching in response to people who are perverting the gospel and saying, no, let's say very clearly what we as Christians believe, okay? This is not an incantation. You don't recite this to ward away the devil or anything like that at all. But it is to remind you of what we actually believe as Christians. And where the language, sometimes in the New Testament, we might get confused by, uh, the firstborn of all creation, that the Mormon on our doorstep might also be using and twisting and meaning something different, these are good reminders of what we mean when we say that, okay? So, as an example, a couple things. I believe in one Lord. 
Just right out of the gate. I believe in one Lord. That is not true in Mormon doctrine. There are, at the very least, two gods that they directly worship. Now, how many, again, turtles all the way down, gods all the way up, right, in Mormonism theology. But, but the point is, it's polytheism. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten. I believe in one God. In the, in the previous one, I, I left that one out. But I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, remember what we're saying when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, because this will get pushed back on in Mormonism theology. Well, you believe in three gods, too. Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you believe in three gods. That is not what we believe. We believe in three persons that all share the same essence of God. Okay? That's a distinct difference. I may not be able to wrap my head around all that that means and what it's like to be one of the persons of the Trinity. I, I, I can't do that, obviously. But this is how it's understood. There are three persons, one essence. Jasmine. Uh, explain more what you mean. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, I would be a good question to ask your Mormon missionary friend when they're on your doorstep. Um, you know, what do you do with this commandment alone, right? So, or your your Mormon friend that you might know. Um, so remember what we mean when we when we talk about the Trinity, and this is a good thing to just rehearse, remember, recite. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father. Through Him all things were made. Jesus cannot be made if through Him all things were made. Um, and He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate in the Virgin Mary. He rose again on the third day, not as a spirit creature or anything else, but he rose again bodily in the flesh. Uh, who with the Father, and then we believe in one spirit, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. So remembering the doctrine of the Trinity is paramount. And, and this is why when we, I, I cringe when we talk about Trinity amongst Christians and, they kinda, and people kind of go, you know, ah, you know, I, I can't understand any of that. I get it. We're not God. His ways are higher than our ways, so there's certain aspects of it we're not going to be able to comprehend. For instance, we don't understand what the interworking dynamics are between the Father and the Son. We, we can't possibly understand it because we're not them. Okay, I get that. But where God has actually explained to us things in His Word... We're negligent if we don't wrestle to understand them. Does that make sense? Even when they're hard, especially when they're hard, it's time to go, okay, let's first wrestle with the creeds the way they've explained it, and then let's think through that over and over again, reminding ourselves three persons, yes, but sharing the same essence of being God. Nobody else has that, right? So, 
when we're talking with, with Mormons, it's important to keep those things in our mind, that this is what true doctrine sounds like. I mean, honestly, you can, these are quotes straight from them. Keep it by your door. They're, they're going to show up to your doorstep at some point. Just hang on just a second. I got to pull out the thing. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> is this true? <laughs> is this true? I mean, do it. You know, why not? What's the problem with that? Uh, but, it's, but again, re- just remembering, re- reiterating to yourself, this is, this is what sound doctrine sounds like. And what's in front of me is a perversion of that doctrine. And this is how. Timothy. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, that that is interesting. The similarities between Mormonism and Islam. That's that's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, a book by a Mormon who is converted to Christianity. Uh, I would bet money right now that there is, but I don't know of one off the top of my head. I guarantee you there is. I, I would, so here, if you are, just have an hour, it's free time, and you happen to find yourself in front of a computer, and maybe even in front of YouTube, there's a guy by the name of Jeff Durbin. You ever heard of Jeff Durbin? Uh, Apologia Studios, he's very good. Uh, he is right there in Arizona, frequenting in Utah, interacting with a lot of Mormon missionaries, and he just goes up to them on the street and just starts debating them right there on the street. And normally the debates are an hour long where he's just having conversations with, uh, with Mormons. You can learn more, one, about Christian doctrine and more about Mormon doctrine and how the two relate to one another right there and watching some of those than you can in a lot of other capacities, all right? Yeah. He, he, it would be well worth your time to just watch a video or two of him interacting with these Mormons. A good long one, you know, a good, where he gets in a really good long discussion with them. Uh, Jeff Durbin, he's really good. I experienced that firsthand at a park. <laughs> again, I think, again, I think what, the way we're approaching this is to say, here is what I believe, okay? And in the event that they come to you and say, well, we believe the same thing. The response is, great, why are you here talking to me? They don't. They don't believe the same thing, and they will admit that if cornered. But the point is to, say, to reiterate, here is what I believe. I believe that, that Jesus Christ is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in essence with the Father. I believe in the triune Godhead. I believe in one God, maker, almighty. Um, and reiterating sound doctrine to them. And when they say, well, I believe those things too, again, why are you here talking to me then? 
and, well, I don't believe you believe the fullness of the gospel. No, no, no. God himself took on flesh, came to me, and gave this doctrine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. My conversation with the Mormon, and I'm not saying I did it right. I think there was a lot of things I did very, very wrong. But my conversation with the Mormon missionary ended, both the Mormon missionaries ended with when your church explains to you that, that Jesus was procreated and that there are two gods, at least in Mormonism, uh, come talk to me. And that's how it ended. And maybe that's how it ends with you. But, uh, but certainly that, that's where it should go. You're, you're not going to win explaining the finer points of Mormon theology to them. Nor are you going to know them. You're going to run out, right, at some point. You're going to come to an end of your knowledge. It's reiterating sound doctrine to them and saying this is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. We've got to go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for an opportunity uh, to just remember what is true. And I pray that you would give us help when we encounter uh, those on our doorstep who claim to be brothers and sisters but are not, but are preaching a false gospel, that we would lovingly correct them, that we would reiterate sound doctrine. And we pray that some would come to Christ, that all of them would at the witness of maybe people even inside this church as they open their doorstep to find them there. Um, we want them to become believers in the true gospel and to no longer feel as though they have to accomplish salvation by their own hands. Uh, God, help us from ever having to think that. Um, so would you give us help there and solidify our feet in sound doctrine? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.